Good morning, church. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Fathers, we gather this morning, we come together as, as a body of people who have been troubled from long ago, troubled by sin and troubled by the effects of sin, and we are gathered here in a place that some would call a sanctuary, but which we might more appropriately call an auditorium because you are the sanctuary. And we thank you, Lord, that the things that we have sung this morning are true, that in the midst of the difficulties of life, the winds that blow and the waves that crash upon us, that you are the sure and steady anchor of our lives. You are the sanctuary in in our storms. And we thank you, Father, that as we open your word this morning, we're reminded of these things once again. And we pray, Father, that as is so often the case, that your word would prove timely for us and that your Holy Spirit would prove kind to us by helping us to understand these things and to love them and to apply them rightly. We ask all these things with great boldness because of the love that you've shown us through Jesus Christ, your Son. Amen. Please open your Bibles to... Mark chapter 6, Mark chapter 6, our text this morning extends from verse 45 to 52, so as you are finding your place there, let's stand together, and we will read those verses before beginning to make our way through them. Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 45. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. You may be seated. Life is hard. Life is hard. That's what... what came to my mind as as one phrase from the 
Greek text of this passage stood out to me. In in verse 48, where the ESV reads, they were making headway painfully. It more literally reads, they were tormented in the rowing. They were tormented in the rowing. You'll remember that the disciples had just returned from their missionary journeys. Jesus had sent them out to minister in the same ways that he does. They'd just come back, and upon upon coming back to Jesus, Jesus called them to serve the 5,000. So they spent likely hours doing that very thing. So now they're exhausted in every way, and the wind is directly against them. And though there's no indication in the text that they're in imminent danger, all of these factors coalesce such that they are tormented in the rowing. Life is hard. And though, though we may not have any maritime experience, we can all identify with that picture. Life is hard. It, it can seem as if it's just one thing after another. It can seem as if everything is more difficult than it has to be. It can seem as if the wind is never with us, but it's always against us, right in our face. And we are frequently tormented in the rowing. I'm betting that at least half of us, perhaps most of us, could name at least two or three factors right now in life that we might describe as the wind blowing directly against us. Life is hard, and it's always going to be hard. It is always going to be hard until the last day. And what will happen on the last day such that life will no longer be hard for those who who follow Christ? We will see him as he is. Paul, Paul describes that last day as the revelation of Jesus Christ. We will see him in all of his fullness. And the last couple of chapters of the book of Revelation depicts the effect that that's going to have on all things. The full revelation of Jesus Christ will mean no more crying, no more death, no more mourning, no more pain, and he himself will sustain us from the spring of the water of life forevermore. Everything will be set right at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, if the full revelation of Christ is what will make all things right then what is it that I most need in the meantime? I need as much revelation of him as I can get. And this passage shows us that what we need most when we are tormented in the rowing may not be a change in circumstances, but for him to reveal himself in those circumstances. And when he does, we learn that though life is hard, Jesus is is Yahweh, a trustworthy rock in times of trouble. In this section of of Mark, which extends from from chapter 4 to chapter 8, the evangelist has been portraying Jesus as worthy of faith and therefore the life of the disciple as a life of faith. And the life of the disciple as a life of of continuing faith, striving to believe, striving to trust, is most cogently depicted for us in three scenes on the Sea of Galilee. We've already seen one of them. We've just read about a second. There's a third coming. 
But the first was that, that scene where Jesus calmed the sea back in chapter 4. And at the end of that sea, the disciples were moved to ask a question, Who then is this, that even the wind and the waves obey him? Well, now we come to this second scene on the sea, where once again we find the disciples struggling to believe. Now look, at, look again at, at verse 45. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and, and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. So this is the crowd that they've just fed. Jesus is dismissing the huge crowd. Verse 46, and after he had taken leave of them, leave of the crowd, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea and he was alone on the land. So Mark just wants us to, to understand the situation here. The disciples are by themselves out in the, the Sea of Galilee. Jesus is up on the mountain praying. He's enjoying time with the Father. And from where he, he is on the mountain, he can see what's going on with them. He can see the, their progress. And this is where we pick up our first key in the story, which is this. Jesus sees my struggling and moves to help. Jesus sees my struggling and moves to help. Verse 48. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. The thing that is most amazing to me, perhaps because I'm, I'm so used to reading this story, it's not the walking on the sea, it's how late he is he's staying up praying. The, the fourth watch of the night is, is 3 to 6 a.m. Jesus is still up praying. He is still enjoying the Father. Now, he looks up from his, his time praying there, and he sees, this, he sees out on the sea the disciples. He sees that they are tormented in the rowing, and he moves to help them. The, the main clause of verse 48 is, and he comes. He, he sees them in trouble and he comes. Now, of course, he does that in miraculous fashion, and we'll talk about that more, more shortly. But I'd like to take a moment first to just consider the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ that's on display for us here. It does not appear that the disciples are in dire straits. I mean, Jesus likely could have finished his, his prayer time. Let, let the disciples continue to struggle for a bit. He, he could have been like me. Eh, let them tough it out. It'll be good for them. But, but Jesus is not like that. He, he, he could see what's going on, and he moves to help, and we could say that really is what Jesus is all about. It's, it's why Jesus took on human flesh. Life is hard. Now, why is it hard? Well, we go all the way back to the beginning, and we find that life began to be hard in Genesis chapter 3 when man rebelled against God. Before that, everything was bliss. Man walked and talked with God as a man walks and talks with his friend. But when he rebelled against God and sin entered the world, that was lost, this closeness with, with the Creator. That's lost, and everything, including man's own affections, became tainted by sin. And all manners of difficulty arose as a result of sin entering the world. 
Genesis 3, verses 17 through 19, tells us that part of the curse on man is that his work would become difficult. I wonder how many of us this week have, have thought something like, man, life is hard because of something you encountered at work. We could trace that back to Genesis chapter 3, where, where God said, look, you're going to work the land, Adam, and that, that land is not going to easily give forth its fruit, but rather is going to want to give you thorns and thistles instead. You're going to have to eat bread and fruit by the, by the sweat of your brow. It's going to be hard. Romans 8 tells us that the whole creation fell with Adam, all creation, and man in every part of his being, and so sickness came. And natural disasters came. And literal death came. And life became hard, hard, hard. And that isn't even the worst of it. Man man not only lost God in this life, but he lost God for all eternity. Because sin demands an eternal payment in hell. Sin demands an eternal payment in hell, and so man lost God eternally. Anybody ever heard somebody say, life is hard and then you die? Anybody ever heard that? Life is hard and then you die. That's actually the rosy version. (laughs) Life is hard and then you go to hell. That is man's problem. That is man's problem. What does man need? He needs God back. The issue is that there is sin standing between him and God that must be dealt with. And so God, being rich in mercy and great in love, devised this plan by which he would take care of that wall of sin and give himself back to man, by which he would would reveal himself fully to man. He sent his son to rescue sinners. And that, that, that plan of rescue entailed the son serving sinners in two particular ways. The first is that he, he lived a righteous life in their place so that his righteousness could be credited to their account unto their eternal reward. That's the first way. He lives a righteous life so that his righteous life could be credited to them. A second way is that he serves them in death. So he not only serves them in life, he serves them in death. Their sin and its punishment is credited to his account so that when he suffered on the cross, there was no condemnation left for them. And he rose three days later from the dead, proving that those two ways in which Christ served them, those were completely sufficient to save them. He has put away their sin, and he has earned the right to give life to everyone who repents and trusts in him. And that's why Jesus comes in Mark 1.14, calling all people everywhere to repent and believe the gospel. He's calling them to turn from their sin and to trust in his life, death, and resurrection in order that they might be reconciled to God. And Jesus did all of this willingly, not under coercion. It's what he most wanted to do. And so here on the sea... We see Jesus just doing what Jesus does, rescuing those who need rescue. He did it that day. He did it on Good Friday. And he still does it today, even though we, we 
really struggle to believe that. And in our doubt, when we struggle to believe that, what we fail to see is what the gospel, the good news, says about our here and now. If, if Jesus would lay aside heaven and take on human flesh in order to suffer death and save us from our sins when we were his enemies, how will he not also move to help us in lesser temporal struggles now that we've become his brothers and sisters? To doubt that is to doubt the heart of Christ. You can rest assured that whenever the wind is against you, in whatever ways the wind is against you right now, he sees. And his inexorable impulse is to come, to come and to help. And, and you may wonder, well, then why isn't he doing that? Why isn't he coming? Why isn't he helping me? Well, that leads us to a second key in the text. That is that Jesus helps by revealing his glory. Jesus helps by revealing his glory. Let's look at the the very last part of verse 8 now. He meant to pass by them. Wow. Doesn't sound like he wants to help them. Right? I mean, just on a cursory reading, we might might think that, that Jesus' mindset is, wow, they look like they're in real trouble. I better walk past them. Might not be exactly what somebody who's in trouble has in mind. But there are some clues indicating that what we read on the surface of the text is not what's intended by by Mark. The larger biblical context indicates that passing by them doesn't merely mean pass by them in the same sense that we might pass by somebody on the street. The first clue is the water walking itself. This is something that according to the Old Testament only Yahweh does. You can write down a few references to that effect. Job 9.8. Job 9.8 reveals that Yahweh alone tramples on the sea. Yahweh alone tramples the sea. Later in the book of Job, Job 38.16 implies that Yahweh, Yahweh alone, he is unique in, in that he has walked the recesses of the sea. There are similar statements in Habakkuk 3.15. Habakkuk 3.15 and Isaiah 43.16. So if you'll remember, remember when we were looking at that, that scene of the feeding of the 5,000, there were numerous elements there indicating things about Jesus and his, his deity, that he is Yahweh. So also there are, there are elements of this scene indicating the same thing. And when we understand that, then our cross-reference synapses may begin to fire especially regarding that phrase, pass by. In Exodus chapter 33, Moses said to Yahweh, show me your glory. Show me your glory. And Yahweh said in response, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, Yahweh. And we skip down a verse He says, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock. Now, in that act of of passing by Moses, God revealed his glory. That is, he pulled back the veil, in a sense, 
and showed Moses something of himself that he had not shown before. Showed him who he is and what he's like. Now, the, the Greek verb for pass by there in, in Exodus 33 is, is the same verb that's used here in Mark 6. And because of that scene in Exodus 33, some Old Testament scholars view that Greek word pass by as a, something of a technical term for an epiphany or a manifestation of God. In, in other words, by walking on the sea, Jesus wanted to pass by them in the sense that he wanted to manifest his identity to them. He wanted to say to them by his actions, once again, just like he did with the feeding of the 5,000, I am Yahweh. So the, the walking on the water is, is, not just, is not just another cool miracle, and it wasn't just the shortest distance between two points. It was about revelation, revelation of his glory. I'm Yahweh, and here's what I'm like. Now think about what that means regarding Jesus' desire to help. Mark does not write, and he came walking on the sea, and he desired to calm the wind. But rather, he wrote, and he came walking on the sea, and he desired to pass by them. He saw them in their need. He wanted to help, but his desire was to help not by calming the wind, which he could have done from the shore, but by revealing himself to be Yahweh, the one who tramples the sea, the one who is Lord over their situation. The sea is troubling them. Well, he is the one who tramples the sea. And in Jesus' mind, that is far more helpful and urgent for them than the calming of the storm. And he's right. He's always right. Now, sometimes the Lord does calm the storm, just like we saw in chapter 4. But at other times, there is a, there's a better way. And just because the, so, the storm still rages, just because we may still be tormented in the rowing, that does not mean that either he doesn't see or that he sees and he doesn't care. He always sees. He always cares. He always helps. It may be that his help is coming to us in the form of revealing more of himself. Life is hard. Well, cling to me. I am more glorious, more delightful, and stronger than life is hard. The classic case of the Lord deciding to help someone in this way is, of course, found in the New Testament in Paul's thorn in the flesh in 2 Corinthians 12. Paul hated that affliction so much that he prays repeatedly for its removal. However, after the Lord opened Paul's eyes to see his design in that trial, which was to allow Paul to experience more of his strength, more of his grace, well, then Paul's all about that trial. It's all about it. It was well worth what he endured because of what he gained in terms of the power of Christ at work in him. Now, some of us may be praying these days, Lord, I want to know you. Will you please reveal yourself to me? And will you please remove this trial that I'm, that I'm going through? 
Now, there's nothing wrong with praying for the removal of trials. And when the Lord does, does that, we should rejoice and worship Him. But we ought also consider that the answer to the prayer for more of Him and that He would reveal Himself, the answer to that prayer may come in the delay of the removal of the trial. He could be saying, absolutely, I'm going to show myself to you, and I'm going to do it in the midst of this difficulty. In in the storm, he shows us his strength and his grace, his wisdom, his power, his love, his presence, his tenderness. And while showing us those things, he gives us the opportunity to cling to all of that in Him. He shows us how true it is that when when He is all we have, we have all. Great strides in, in Christian maturity and affection for Him are to be had in the rowing, knowing who He is and that He is with us in that rowing. Now, as in the other scenes on the sea, the disciples... The disciples miss this, and their failure may be a comfort to us. I do find it comforting. The text does show another key, and that is that even in my failure to trust, He helps me. Even in my failure to trust, He helps me. Verse 49, but when they saw Him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw Him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Now, the disciples didn't pick up on the message that the Lord intended by walking on the sea. Just like with the feeding of the, of the 5,000, that they're still looking at what Jesus is doing through earthly eyes. In spite of the, the incredible things that Jesus has done in the very recent past, they don't expect to see wild things. So they, so they miss this. They think he's a ghost. And a, a key to note is that when Jesus recognizes that they're not picking up on the nonverbal message, he then verbalizes it. What he says verbally in this, verse 50 is what he said visually in verse 48. Take heart or, or be courageous. It is I. Do not be afraid. That's what he was saying by walking on the sea. When he sees that they don't get that, then he verbalizes it so they can't miss it. However, the little statement, the little statement, it is I, is from the Greek version of Exodus 3, where Yahweh declares himself to be I am. And, and that's the most literal way to translate this sentence. The Greek phrase is ego eimi. Just I am. If you're, if, you're, if you're taking notes, you might write down John chapter 8. In John chapter 8, Jesus has a, a confrontation, relatively heated confrontation with the Jews. And in that confrontation, Jesus says a number of very strong things. He says to them that they don't know the truth. He says that they don't know God. And he says that they are children of the devil. Now, they don't appreciate that, but they don't lose their minds. 
But when Jesus says this same Greek phrase, ego me," they pick up stones to kill him. Why is that? Because they understood what he meant. He is claiming to be Yahweh, and in their minds, that's blasphemy. So, so the message here is, is just like the message in Exodus 3, 14, and Joshua 1, 9. It's, look, I am Yahweh. I am with you. Be courageous. And, and with the visual message of the walking on the sea, the Lord wanted to remind them, hey, remember, I'm still the Yahweh from, from the feeding of the 5,000. Everything is going to be okay. I'm, I'm still that God. There are numerous details in the text indicating that the disciples, they didn't get the visual message. Their eyes of weak faith were, were so weak, so to speak, that they, it just went over their head. Obviously, they're mistaking him for a ghost is here, indicating they're, they're not getting it. That they cry out. Then, then Mark reiterates in verse 50, lest, lest we miss it, for they all saw him and were terrified. Now, this is not godly fear, but it is ungodly fear. How do we know that? Because he tells them to stop. He tells them, don't, don't be afraid. And it, what, what he's seeing in them is, is that they're no longer afraid of the wind, but they're afraid of him. Now, we may think that's ridiculous. I would suggest that we frequently have similarly weak eyes of faith, because at times we can be more afraid of what God is doing in a trial than of the trial itself. That is, we spend more time fretting about God's intentions in our circumstances than about the actual circumstances. And I won't ask for a show of hands, but I'm trusting I'm not alone. It can't be just me and the twelve. We think to ourselves, what if he's going to leave me in this? What, what, if, what if he's not going to address it at all? Or what if he is going to address it, but not the way that I want him to? What if he's going to address it, but he's not going to address it quickly enough? And what if in the meantime, other, thing, other, horrible, things, other horrible things happen? In other words, we do have our eyes on God, but not eyes of faith. The kind of heart that Jesus shows here is that even though the disciples are, are weak in faith, they, and they have this inability to recognize this visual message of, of his, him walking on the sea and what he's saying by that, Jesus pressed in more and verbalized it. He, he, did, not, he did not say or think, well, they're not getting the picture here. It's quite obvious what I'm saying. To anybody who knows the Old Testament, I'll let them chew on it for a few months, and they'll get it eventually. No, he, he sees them terrified, no longer of the waves, but of what they've misunderstood of him. He sees what the weakness of their faith needs, and he gives it to them. Hey, look, take heart. I am. Don't be afraid. Even in their misunderstanding, their lack of faith, their hardness of heart. Jesus ministers to them where they are. And, and though it appears that, that, that getting into the boat was not his original plan, Jesus gets into the boat. And when he does, the wind ceases. Mark's portrayal of the wind ceasing, it's striking against the backdrop of, of the scene on the sea in chapter 4. If you'll remember back to chapter 4, it's quite a dramatic calming of the sea. 
Jesus stands and, and rebukes the winds and the waves. Be quiet! Knock it off! And immediately it's silenced. But here, the calming of the sea seems almost inadvertent or accidental. The emphasis is not on the calming of the sea, but rather it's on Jesus' person and his presence. This is what he wanted to give the disciples. He desired to pass by them. But he's just so kind that he sees them in their struggle. He moves to help. The greatest help he can give them is to reveal his glory to them, his glory to us. When we fail to get it, he doesn't walk away, but he just he presses in. If, if failing to get it were grounds for abandonment by Jesus, I would have been left by the side of the road long ago. But he stays with me, pressing in, showing me in more and more ways who he is, what he's like, and that he can be trusted. And then the next time I fail to trust, he, sh- he shows me all over again. Yahweh, Yahweh a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Now, we could notice these things in the text and and think, oh, what a relief. It doesn't matter if I don't trust Him. Now, we do not want to go there because that really is not the point of the passage. The last key is, and here it is, My greater comfort comes by trusting Him. My greater comfort comes by trusting Him. While we do see Jesus' great kindness and patience here, and while there should be great comfort in knowing that when our eyes of faith are are, are weak, they only see dimly, He's still there pressing in. If we want to stick close to the text, though, we, we want to recognize that Mark is bringing this scene to us and holding it up as as a picture of a failure of faith. When interpreting biblical narrative, you don't often get a hand-wrapped gift like verse 52. Verse 52 is is what we would call an authorial comment. It, It is not a detail of the story. Mark is commenting on the story so that we can understand how we should interpret it. He says, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. And there's a theme here in these scenes on the sea. The third one's going to clinch it for us. They are struggling to trust. Now that language of a hard heart, that should call our minds also back to the Old Testament. He's drawing a parallel between the disciples and the people of Israel. Even though they have seen so many things of of Christ, of His power, of His mercy, His love, His inclination to care for them. Even though they've seen all of that, like the Israelites, they are slow, slow, slow to trust Him. Now, is Mark calling into question whether the disciples are actually disciples? No, we can't say that because if we read the whole book of Mark, we find also that that he presents the disciples as, as a paradigm for what it means to follow Jesus. They have repented and they have believed, but this scene and others in Mark demonstrate for us the typical difficulty that a disciple will have in walking in faith. And it shows that as as disciples, 
we must be aware of that and we must strive daily to keep believing, reminding ourselves of what we know to be true and living in light of the truth. And this is, this is what the apostles do. I mean, they, they, they take Jesus and this message here at, at, at his word and they do this going forward. We find in the book of Acts numerous times people coming to, to, to faith in Christ and immediately the apostles saying, now look, you've got to press on in the faith. Keep believing. Walk in faithfulness. Why would they do that? Because they know the life of a disciple is a life of a faith, and it is not easy to walk in faith. We likely can all identify with that difficulty. It is not easy to trust the Lord in all seasons, in all circumstances. That does not mean that we should be casual about it but rather with the apostles and in accordance with the things that they write to us in the Scriptures, we should strive to trust Him. Now, Mark mentions that the disciples did not understand about the loaves. What is it that they didn't understand? First and foremost, they did not understand that Jesus is Yahweh, so that they missed His identity statement that He was making through feeding all of those people. And so they missed the identity statement then that came in the walking on the sea. And they were astounded then at this this verbal self-identification, I am, and then the calming of the wind. Now, what is the danger in missing all of this? The danger in in missing his revelation and our struggles. Why is that dangerous? Well, the danger is just that. We miss him. The greater comfort that can be had in our struggles is for us to see who he is. And when we miss him, we miss that greatest comfort. And that, that, is, that is one of the things that should move us to press hard into faith so that we don't ever miss seeing him in the little things and in the grand things. I mentioned Job chapter 9 earlier as one of the Old Testament passages depicting Yahweh as one who tramples on the sea. And Jesus has just done that very thing. He's trampled on the sea. In that short, same short section of Job 9, Job continues writing about Yahweh, and he writes this, Behold, he passes by me. Same word. Behold, he passes by me, and I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. And at that point in the book of Job, Job has no idea how right he is. Is God has been revealing himself to Job, and Job has been missing it. God has been passing by. Job has not been seeing him. And when our eyes are so set on a particular way that God should be acting or should be helping us, we run the risk of missing him. So we should ask the question in the midst of our struggles, Lord, what do you want to show me about yourself. Now, if we were to go back to this narrative and place a what if on the text, imagine for a moment that the disciples completely understood about the loaves. They got it. Jesus is Yahweh. This is Yahweh. He's the one who feeds his people. 
then, very shortly, they find themselves on the sea. They're tormented in the rowing. Life is hard. They're struggling. Absolute misery. But they look up and they see Yahweh walking on the sea. All the connections click once again. And they realize, that's right. He's Yahweh. He's here. He tramples the waves of the sea that beset us. Though the rowing is hard, the Almighty Master of the waves is right here with us. Everything's going to be okay. Nothing's changed about the rowing. It's still hard. But the God of those waves, he's right there, and he loves us. It's going to be all right. And perhaps the Lord would have expected them to continue rowing into the wind. It would have, it would have continued to be a difficult voyage, but a very different voyage from then on. Still physically hard, but no issues in their hearts or mind because they're thinking, oh, it's, it's, he's right there. It's going to be okay. And in a sense, their hearts would have been speaking to them what Jesus spoke to them in verse 52. Take heart, it's Yahweh, don't be afraid, we'll get to the other side. That experience would have served them very well in their next struggle because they would have taken that revelation of the God who tramples the waves into the next difficulty of life. There would have been more comfort more quickly. Faith is always the better way. Life is hard. It's going to be hard until the revelation of Jesus Christ. We are right to long for that day. According to Romans chapter 8, all creation is groaning for that day. In the meantime, what is the best thing for us when we are tormented in the rowing? It is to get as much revelation of Him as we possibly can. So what if we made it a habit of praying, Lord, help me to see you? Or to, to, use, to use Moses' language from, from Exodus 33, Lord, show me your glory and give me eyes of faith to see it clearly. Forgive me when I miss it. Thank you for, for not giving up on me. But please keep it coming. And please come quickly. If we prayed that way, expectantly, we might find that while life is hard, we have a rock that is more than sufficient to see us through to the other side. I'm going to pray to close us here. And in a few moments, we will observe a few moments of of silent reflection, I would encourage you in those moments to consider what exactly it is that the Lord would have you to do with these things. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who has come to address the greatest difficulties that faced us, sin and eternal death, separation from you. Father, we have trusted you with that. We've turned from our sin. We've trusted you to save us from sin and death, separation from you. We confess, Lord, that 
as life continues to be hard, we, we fail to trust you. We pray, Father, that you would keep our eyes on Jesus, eyes of faith, and that we would believe that what we most need in these times of difficulty is more of Him, to see Him rightly, to see in greater fullness His character, His love, His strength, that we might learn to cling to Him, to prize Him, to desire Him. And we ask, Father, that Your Holy Spirit would move us to strive to trust Him in these days of difficulty. Looking forward to that day of complete revelation when His glorious appearance will set all things right. Lord, please help us by revealing more of Jesus to us when we are tormented in the rowing. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.